Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hello. Hey, everyone. How are you? What's happening out there? This is Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. This is the Other People Show. It's nice to be with you. Thanks for listening. Today on the program, my guest is Ayobami Adebayo, author of a new novel called A Spell of Good Things. But I mean, with this book, I didn't want to avoid what by the time I'd finished it, felt like the reality of the world that I'd created, you know. I wanted to go in there and face the things. You know, You know, I'd said earlier, for instance, that in an initial draft, I had the younger sister be the Hanko character. And I think part of it was that I really just did not want to go through this harrowing thing. I wanted to see it refracted through, you know, the younger sister. I didn't want to be there. But by the time I came back to it again, I realized that that was, was what I needed to do for this book, that I needed to go there. And um, yeah, I, I hope it worked. Okay, that was Ayobami Adebayo. Her new novel, A Spell of Good Things, is out there now on Kanapf. This is Ayobami's second time on the Other People podcast. She first appeared on the program almost six years ago in episode 485 all the way back in October of 2017. And now she is making her triumphant return. A Spell of Good Things is a novel about two families in modern Nigeria whose lives intersect in unexpected ways. And at the heart of the novel are two characters from very different circumstances on the one hand, we have a teenage boy named Eniola, who is bright and ambitious and sweet and a little lost. And he comes from a family that is experiencing poverty. And so he's trying to navigate that as he tries to navigate adolescence and school and friendship and work and deprivation. He's up against it. And he's trying hard to imagine a future for himself in a Nigeria where upward mobility for people in his situation is in serious question. And then 
The second main character is a woman named Warola, a young woman who is a doctor in a public hospital in Nigeria. And she comes from a well-to-do family and is involved in a relationship with a young man from an even more well-to-do family. Uh, this is a family that has political aspirations. And Warola is about to marry into it. So on the surface, things would seem to be falling into place and going well for her, but her boyfriend slash fiance is temperamental and abusive and not really who she imagines him to be. So in this novel, A Spell of Good Things, Ayubami Adebayo has written a sweeping and totally absorbing, deeply human, deeply tragic book about life in Nigeria and life in general with its gender inequities, its economic disparities, its political corruption, and its familial bonds and familial dysfunctions. It's a terrific new novel from a very gifted writer. My conversation with Ayobami Adebayo is coming up momentarily. Today's episode is brought to you by W.W. Norton & Company, publisher of the novel Margot by Wendell Stevenson. I just interviewed Wendell Stevenson on this program. You should listen to her episode. A very fascinating writer, a journalist, a war correspondent. She's lived and worked all over the world in very dangerous places. She has been witness to some real history. And now she is publishing her second novel. Again, it is called Margot. It is a coming-of-age story about a young woman growing up in the mid-20th century, and in particular in the 1960s. That's when she really comes of age, and that is when her path diverges from that of her well-to-do family in Manhattan. It's a book about what it means, and in particular what it meant to be a woman in the world, and it is totally engrossing. Again, it's called Margot. It's by Wendell Stevenson. It is out there now, from W.W. W. Norton & Company. Go get your copy. The Other People podcast is offered freely. Did you know that? The entire catalog of this podcast is made available to listeners free of charge. That's more than 800 of these conversations and counting. All of it is available. There are no paywalls by design. I don't like paywalls. And I know you don't like paywalls. Nobody likes paywalls. So there are no paywalls on this show you can have at it. I want this content to be available to everyone as, you know, as widely and as easily as possible. But what I am counting on is that regular listeners, people who really love this show, people who love and want to support literary culture will support this show. And you can do that for as little as $1 a month over at patreon.com slash other pod. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, dot com slash other ppl pod it's a sliding scale i've tried to make supporting this show a no-brainer i know that there are different income levels out there and so one dollar a month that's it just throw a dollar in the hat or as you slide up the scale three five ten twenty whatever you can afford and as you do slide up that scale you get merchandise a t-shirt a coffee mug a tote bag a book club subscription all that sort of stuff over at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. I would appreciate your support. You can also, if you would like, just get some merchandise. You want to get another people t-shirt, another people sweatshirt. 
even other people baby clothes. You can do that at the other people website, otherppl.com. Just look for the t-shirt. You'll find it. You'll see. It's easy. Get yourself another people t-shirt. They are good t-shirts, I should add. They fit well. They're very soft. If you would like to sign up for my email newsletter, that is a thing. It is free. It goes out once a week. You can sign up at the show's website, otherppl.com. You can also sign up at my website, bradlisty.com. It's the same newsletter in both places. It's pretty straightforward. I will let you know about the latest episodes of the podcast. It's, it's basically an enumerated list of the newest episodes and then also things that I have been reading and finding interesting. So if you would like to receive my weekly, once a week email newsletter, sign up for that at your leisure. Another way to help this show is to rate it and review it wherever you listen. So if you listen at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, whatever it is, give the show a rating or write a review or both, whatever, whatever you can do. It takes a couple of minutes. It really helps the show find new listeners algorithmically. The Other People Podcast has a YouTube channel. The entire archive of episodes is available on YouTube. So go to YouTube, search for the show by name. You can watch my conversation with Ayobami Adebayo on the Other People YouTube channel. I started doing video late last year, so you can watch the show now if that is your preference. You can also watch highlights or clips of these conversations on TikTok or on Instagram or even on Twitter. The Twitter handle for the Other People show is at OtherPPL. If you have any thoughts or feedback or you want to tell me a story, the email address for this program is letters at otherppl.com, letters at otherppl.com. Last but not least, I have a novel out. It is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. It came out last year. It is available in trade paperback, ebook, and audiobook editions. It is a work of autofiction. It was named one of the best books of 2022 by the San Francisco Chronicle, if that counts for anything. Again, it is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. Go get a copy if you want to read it. So, once again, my guest today is Ayobami Adebayo. Her new novel is called A Spell of Good Things. It published here in North America just yesterday. It is out there now from Kanaf in a beautiful hardcover edition. Ayobami Adebayo's debut novel, Stay With Me, has now been translated into 22 languages. It was the recipient of the Nine Mobile Prize for Literature. It was shortlisted for the Bailey's Prize for Women's Fiction. The French translation was awarded the Prix L'Afrique, and the book was also longlisted for the International Dylan Thomas Prize and the International Dublin Literary Award. So, quite a debut. And now, here she is, returning with her second novel, six years later, eagerly anticipated by her fans around the world. I am so pleased to have had the chance to talk with her once again, and I'm very excited to share this conversation with you right now. Here she is, ladies and gentlemen. This is Ayobami Adebayo, and her new novel, one more time, is called A Spell of Good Things. So I was sort of in between drafts with debut and I'd sort of thought to myself, maybe this book will never get published because I can't seem to finish it. And 
I thought maybe it's it's not my first book, you know. Maybe it's just one of those books that you leave in the drawer. And then I started working on this one at that time, you know. So I'd gone quite a bit of quite some distance before Stay With Me was published with this book. Okay, so what place us in time then? This would have been ten years ago, six years ago. <laughs> this was, I think, about ten years ago, actually. Oh, wow! This is twenty thirteen. I had just started my Hemming creative writing in the UK at that time, and I had the option of submitting "Stay with Me," which I was working on, or I'd finished. I think I'd done a few drafts by then. And I had two reasons. I was sort of losing faith in the book because it had gotten so many rejections from agents. And I just thought, so maybe this is not my, the book that is going to be the first one I published. And I also wanted to hold on to it and finish it on my own because I, I worried that if I worked on Stay With Me during the MA year, when I leave the MA program, maybe I wouldn't know how to finish a book. So I decided to just start working on something totally new. And that's when I started working on what will become a spell of good things. Okay. So first of all, there's a couple of things I want to flag here. Uh, Stay With Me is a book that for a debut had an extraordinary amount of success. It was a finalist, I believe, for the Dylan Thomas Prize. The, what was it? There are other prizes. It was one of these yeah. debuts. Yeah. So it was a it was very celebrated, and yet when I hear you talk about this time in your life, you're talking about how you almost lost faith. You had been rejected a lot of times. I think my listeners, many of whom are writers or aspiring writers, they love to hear stories like this. <laughs> I love to hear stories like this. <laughs> so Be- do I. Because, yeah, but it's normal. Is the point? It's not. It's not. I think an abnormal situation to be in, Mm. in particular, maybe for somebody who's debuting or trying to debut Mm. to receive resistance from agents or people Mm. just don't want to give a a new writer at the time of day. And that Mm. was the case, even for a book that went on to do so well. Absolutely. And I think that's one of the reasons why I was I was very shocked at how well it did, because when somebody finally took a chance on it, I was sort of thinking, oh, this is nice at least it's going to be out in the world, you know, I'm grateful for that. I I don't think I had any real expectations besides that. I think just because of how long it had taken me to get to that point. So it was, it was a really, really astonishing year, I think, and very surprising in many ways. I think it's also interesting the way that creative projects can influence one another Hmm. and the way that writers will sometimes run into uh, some kind of block, whether it's it's like a writer's block or they just kind of hit a wall creatively with a project. They don't know which way to turn or if it's going to come together. Mm. And so rather than sit there and kind of grind their wheels, you know, or spin their wheels in this stuck place, they might turn to an entirely different project just to keep moving and just to kind of get away and give themselves some space. And what I'm interested in is the way that this process can free a person up and maybe give them new insight into the work that was previously giving them trouble. Hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like, was that the case? A spell of good things. It it seems to have maybe opened up 
some new avenues for you with Stay With Me? I think it definitely did. That's a really good question because with Stay With Me, one of the problems it had in the initial iterations was the structure. So I had the structure where we had the first half of the book from the wife's perspective, and then we go to the second half of the book and it's the husband's perspective. And I'd stayed with that for years, you know, and I just kept editing that. And by this time I said writing a spell of good things, right from the beginning, it was toggling back and forth, you know, between different perspectives. And I think that sort of informed coming back to edit, stay with me again and realizing that the structure was one of the major problems that it had, you know, that I was trying to write two characters that the reader would be invested in, or at least, you know, maybe not like both of them, but be invested in them, even if you don't agree with the decisions they make. And I realized that with that setup, by the time you get to the husband's side of the story, you're just like, I don't want to see, hear anything this guy has to say. I'm just done with this book. I'm going to leave now. And so definitely, I, I do think that it helped me to see, stay with me and in a different way. And it opened up the possibilities in terms of the narrative structure for me. And so Stay With Me is published, like we said, to, to great acclaim, uh, nominated for all these awards, surpassed, I think, your expectations for it, it's fair to say, and launched you as a writer. And then the next step for you is to follow it up, which is what you're doing here. And you know, this book is publishing six years later, I know from reading a little bit online that it's been a busy six years for you in ways that uh, fall outside of literature. You got married, you had a baby. Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, what was it like to try to follow it up? You know, there's the sophomore slump or curse or, you know, th th this yeah. is something that gets talked about. Like, did you feel pressure? Was it difficult in ways that Stay With Me was not? I think it was difficult in a but I mean I'm so grateful that I had started working on it before Stay With Me came out because I think it would have been even more difficult to start something totally new after the first book got the kind of attention that it did because I think it did throw me off for about a year at least I was just it was difficult in that with Stay With Me I feel like I had a kind of freedom <laughs> because I didn't know that anybody was going to ever read the book. I wanted people to read it. I wanted, but it was like, you know, it was like this crazy thing that I was doing, you no know, spending hours and hours on. I was telling my friends, oh, I'm writing a book. And three years later, they're like, you're still writing the book, <laughs> you know. But with this one, <laughs> with this one, I, I, I had an awareness of an audience, which did not exist with Stay With Me, really. And the thing that I feel that I had to do, you know, each time I sat down to write was to help myself to return to that point where I'm the only one in the room with, you know, the page, you know, and I think it's, it's a place that is, is important for me, you know, as a writer to have that freedom to create without immediately thinking about how people might respond to what I'm writing, you know, I want to think about that much later in the process, not when I'm actually creating. So I also read that you 
deliver the final version of a spell of good things less than a week before your son was born. Yeah. And the reason the reason I bring this up is because I have heard this before many times on this show from women who finished a book magically in sync with the delivery of a child. And I think the lesson to draw for uh, women listening out there is that if you want to finish a book, get pregnant. <laughs> There's no deadline the like that one. <laughs> right. But I mean, it's true. There's some truth to it, right? You feel like, oh my God, this baby's coming. I'm never going to write again, or yeah. I'm going to have at least a, a year or two. Yeah. And so it's a great, it's a great discipline. Absolutely. It's, it's so much like if I don't do this now, it will, I don't know when I'm going to do this. So it's right down to the wire. And and so you got it done. It t- So there's six years in between books. And I'm just curious to know a little bit about the process for A Spell of Good Things, mm-hmm. because it's a big book. It's, you know, sprawling comes to mind as an adjective to describe it in terms of its thematic concerns mm-hmm. and the ground you're trying to cover. You know, this is a book that I think assesses, you know, the lives of its characters, but also I think in a way it assesses contemporary Nigeria, mm-hmm. its, uh, its political culture, its social culture, issues of gender and class. You know, it's, a, it's thinking about a lot of big things. And so to get to a point where you are addressing those things in a way that feels satisfactory to you while also telling a really good story that's a heavy lift. Like, what was it like drafting this thing and how, like, how many false summits were there? (laughs) (laughs) It was incredibly messy. I mean, it it took, I said working on it in 2013, I didn't turn on the final draft until last year. So that tells you how long it took. Although I wasn't working on it all the time, for instance, when Stay With Me came out, I, I didn't work on it for like a year at least, you know. And I, I remember after the first year, I had to take some time and I had the opportunity to go to McDowell's and had six weeks to just read what I'd written before again and then sort of start all over again. Writing it was, I can't even count the drafts really, to be honest. So, I mean, you've read the book. So to just illustrate how, you know, I had to redo so many things. They're two Hanko characters. You know, we have these two families and we're going back and forth between the two families. And we're going to different members of the family, but they're two Hanko characters that we sort of stay with from the beginning to the end. And in the present, you know, in the final version, it's Eniola, who's um, a teenage boy, you know, is from a poor family. And the other is Wuraola, who's a young doctor who's just starting out and she's from a richer family. In the first draft, it was Eniola and the younger sister in the other family. So it was two teenagers, you know, who were the mm. anchor characters. And I sort of, I wrote that for maybe about 60,000 words before I realized, I don't think this character can carry this story. And I think that, and I sort of also realized that I was trying to avoid some of the things that the older sister was going through. So the story, the this older story, older sister story was there, but I was refracting it through the younger sister's, you know, perception. And so it was a lot of those kind of realizations, and then going back to the beginning again and rewriting until I had a draft that I could then edit. Okay, so some things that I 
think are important to underline 60,000 words of stuff that you had to rewrite pretty much entirely. 60,000 words yeah. that didn't work. 60,000 words is the length of many novels. <laughs> so yeah. for people listening, I mean, listen, people, this is the way this, that this is the way it gets done. And I think it's important, you know, to point it out because it can feel like such a disaster as a writer when you discover or finally learn that, oh my God, I'm 60,000 words in and this needs to be redone. But it takes that kind of persistence and some sort of emotional equilibrium. Like how do you manage the emotional side of writing when it comes to enduring the inevitable failures of the pro mm. process or the learning processes embedded within the process, you mm. know? Absolutely. It's tough, really. <laughs> it's very... <laughs> yeah just just crying just crying a little <laughs> <Yeah>. bit <laughs> there's a lot of crying and frustration but what what are, what are you doing with this one because because it just feels and for me i feel like it always seems to take forever for me to finish a book you know me too <laughs> so it's just it gets to be frustrating but what i try to do is try to do some small small projects just to give myself a sense of accomplishment and satisfaction so i could write a short story like even 600 words you know just something that i feel this is the beginning and this is the middle and this is the end and i finished it within a month or within a week and it might not go out of my computer but it gives me a sense of having done something with my life that is that's, that's yeah. how I feel about this podcast. It goes out every week. I'm like, look, I did something. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it feels like uh, it's like a necessary emotional experience to like actualize something and put it out there or even just actualize something and be able to point to it on your computer screen. You know, that's, yeah. that's enough. <laughs> yeah. So just to give listeners like a broad sense of what you're doing, you talked a little bit about it, mm. but you have these two central characters, Eniola who is a teenage boy from a poor family in Osun State. Am I pronouncing yeah, that right? Yeah, that's Osun State, yeah. Okay, so Osun State is in Nigeria. And this boy's father has been laid off. He's a teacher. And mm -hmm. it sounds like you're drawing, forgive me for not being super well-versed in Nigerian political history, but it, it sounds like there that you were drawing on actual experiences that you've borne witness to in Nigeria where there were mass layoffs of teachers. And this is this story kind of uh, reflects that, correct? Yes. And it's fine. I think many Nigerians outside of Ocean State probably don't even know this history. You know, it's one of those things that happens on a local level and doesn't necessarily, you know, make the national, catch the national attention, you know. But it happened when I was a teenager. It was something that I saw play out for many people around me. Okay. And his father is deeply depressed. This is a man who can't make a living anymore, who's lost his livelihood and is not handling it with a ton of resilience. I think he's really down on his luck. So Eniola has lost, you know, that energy in the household. His dad just kind of stays in bed. And his family is reduced to having to beg ultimately hmm. you know there's a lot of uh you know there's a lot of subplots he's working for a tailor to help bring in some money and to get himself an apprenticeship for hmm. a possible livelihood he's also trying to attend a private school 
called, if I have this correct, Glorious Destiny Comprehensive Secondary School. Is that right? Yes. <laughs> so he's trying to go to Glorious Destiny, but he's he can't afford the the school fees. Hmm. And so there are there are there's corporal punishment. There's like beatings that he has to endure because he's not paying his fees. Um, so and then he's got this very bright younger sister for whom school is uh, very easy, and she wants to be some sort of scientist. Mm. You know, she loves the she loves to be out in the forest, mm-hmm. and I think forestry is mm-hmm. her interest. So that's just the backdrop for this poor family, and Eniola is the one of the anchor characters. The other anchor character who you mentioned earlier is Warola, who is a doctor in a, what kind of hospital? It was characterized, I remember I was reading a review and I, I'm blanking on the way. It's an underfunded hospital, right? Yeah, that... it's it's a public hospital, but it's as many of them are, it's very underfunded. Okay. Mm-hmm. One of the things I really admired about your drawing of Warola is how real seeming the medical scenes are and i was like wow like does she have medical training and then i found out that you have a sister but you're the daughter of a doctor and you have a sister who's a doctor in a similar situation correct yeah i'm sort of the only person in my immediate family who's not a doctor so i've sat on on a lot of conversations and i literally would go sometimes from secondary school to the hospital and spend like hours there before going on waiting for my mom to be done so i've spent a lot of time in hospitals so this was easy for you really it was like second nature (laughs) and you had somebody to call if you ever had a question yeah (laughs) so wariola is betrothed is that right is that engaged i never is that engaged engaged or does that mean you're married i'm not sure no i think that means you're engaged okay so she's engaged Mm -hmm. to a well-born nigerian guy named kunle is that the right pronunciation? Yeah. Kunle. I, there's a lot of accents on vowels, I noticed. in Is it mm-hmm. Yoruba? I'm, I'm trying to like... Yes. Oh. Yes, it's a very tonal language. Okay. Because I was like um, reading and I'm sitting there trying to like... I'm like looking at the different... I don't even know what these accents mean in any... <laughs> so I'm looking to see how to pronounce, but it's Kunle is the guy's name. Yeah, that's pretty good, actually. All right. So... She's engaged to this guy. It's a good marriage from the perspective mm. of class. And I think her parents are very excited about it because they know she's going to be taken care of if she marries this guy. Mm. She'll be in a stable mm. financial situation. But he is hot-headed, shall we say, mm. and ab- abusive, frankly. Mm. And I think the story that you're telling with her gets into a lot of the gender politics of Nigeria. And this story takes place in what the in the aughts. It's not. Yeah, in the early aughts. Yeah. Okay, and so just to contextualize things for listeners who might not be aware, you know, Nigeria has, in the last several decades, had a, a relatively volatile political situation. There have been big shifts, like uh, politically, <laughs> in terms of how the country is governed. And I believe in the early aughts, you would be in the wake of. What, the end of a dictatorship and the beginning of a democracy? Is that right? Absolutely. So, the, I mean, the military regime ended in 1999. So we sort of entered into the new millennium with, you know, this very new democracy. Okay. And that, I think, is informing, maybe not in a direct way or an explicit way, but in an implicit way, 
I could feel that. You know, I think that there is an element of an explicit element of politics to the plot because Kunle comes from a family that has political interest. It's a it's a it's a moneyed family, and the father is interested in the governorship of the state of Osan. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. And then there's a, a rival family that also factors into the book. So we get to see the machinations of how power works, at least, mm. you know, in an oblique way. And it's not always pretty, shall we say. And I was telling you before we came on, you know, I never really do any pr- like pre-reading before I read a book for this show. I just, it, it feels like I'm on an assembly line because I'm doing so many interviews. And so I'm just reading, I'll open a book and I'll just start reading. And when I opened your book and started reading, I was like, oh, wow, she's going to get married. <laughs> she's in this relationship. <laughs> There's this young boy. They're, they're going to school. They're, you know, I thought for a second, I was like, wait, are they going to wind up together? It kind of had this feeling of <laughs> what's going to happen. And my expectations were thwarted. And, you know, I was, uh, I was quickly, you know, disabused of those notions. And this is a much, this is a really rich story. It's also like uh, a tragic story in a lot of ways. Hmm. Uh, there's a lot of hard realities at play. I, I think one of the things that this book does beautifully is it takes the plight of Warola, who is doing well for herself. She's a doctor. She's kind of done the right things, right? She's ticked that box. Mm-hmm. She's got this stable career. And then she's got this boyfriend who wants to marry her, who is all the things that you know, on paper, a person could want. And yet he's not such a great guy. And Mm. she's trying to navigate those tensions. Something I did not realize to a full extent is the, is the gender politics of contemporary Nigeria, or at least Nigeria in recent, in the recent past, polygamy still happens. Mm. Like that's still a, a part of Nigerian life, at least in certain echelons. Is this correct? Yeah. I mean, it's, Yes, I. I mean, money depends on what part of the country you're in, but it, it's. I mean, from the the part of the country that I'm from, it's not as common, I think, as it was say maybe sixty years ago. But I mean, I still have uncles who have at least have three wives, you know. Wow. So it's not so. I okay, one uncle actually, um, <laughs> that I can think of immediately. <laughs> it's not as far fetched, you know. It's not as common, but it's not unheard of, really. Generationally, is it shifting? Like for your generation or for people younger <sighs> than you? Like, Is it changing? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, do you feel like attitudes are shifting with generations? Is this something that's more of an older generation thing or is it still? You know, I think that on the surface, I think it appears to be. I'm a bit suspicious because I, I, I don't think that people let go of advantages very easily i i think it remains to be seen i would i would want to check in in 20 years and see what some of the young men who are getting married now have done because i i i, I mean the other thing that i think you know and i can say for sure is that i think even where the practice of polygamy is not the case the reality of it is weaponized you know even in relationships you know you hear people say well at least they did not marry another one you know so (laughs) by the way by the way that's a very low bar that's a very low bar (laughs) you know so so there's i think there's still that you know 
it's sort of still in the water in, in, in a certain type of way. I mean, there was some woman who, who gave an interview in the newspaper. She's, I wouldn't say who she is. She's relatively famous in Nigeria. And her husband recently married a second wife. And she gave an interview and was saying, you know how men do this. And I'm thinking, no, maybe not. I don't think so. But, <laughs> you, you know, so I, I think, I don't know, honestly. I, I think it's not as common as it used to be. But just the kind of power that it gives men in a relationship you know, in an intimate relationship. I don't think that has necessarily been relinquished. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Yeah, I think that's a very good point you make about people who have these entrenched advantages not wanting to relinquish them, even if they are unjust or mm-hmm. wrongheaded, you know, people will cling to those advantages yeah. as birthrights or something, you know, it's a, yeah. you see it all over the place, but you do a really beautiful job of drawing an abusive relationship. It's very harrowing mm-hmm. to read, but it, mm-hmm. it's, it's right there. You know, you don't shy away from the, that dynamic between Kunle and Wariola and just the the pressures that she's under to you know make what she believes to be the right decision she has this yeah. all this joy and excitement on the you know on her uh, family side with her mother especially i think being yeah. you know really happy about it and then she's got her new in-laws who are obviously overjoyed about it and she's caught in the middle of it and doesn't yeah. want to disappoint and then I hope I'm not spoiling too much, but let's just say someone learns of the abuse, you know, in her family, someone in her family learns of the abuse and this destabilizes things and it makes it, it makes it impossible for her to fully deny what's happening. You know, I think it kind of sets her, sets her on her course of discovery or, you know, moves her in the direction of, um, a resolution. Let's just put it that way. And I think another thing that I noticed, and I'd love to hear you talk about, is the sense of tradition that you might feel Mm -hmm. in writing a socio-political novel about Nigeria. I know Mm -hmm. that there is the epigraph from T.M. Aluko uh, Mm -hmm. in his 1966 novel, Kinsman and Foreman. Mm-hmm. That was a that seems to be. I mean, the book is divided into sections. I think it's four sections, mm-hmm. and each one yes. has epigraphs 
which feature, I think, the work of writers, uh, Nigerian writers whom you admire, yes. correct? Is it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Talk just a little bit about their influence and maybe the, mm-hmm. you know, the way that their work might inform each section or the book overall. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I'll begin with Everything Good Will Come, which is a novel about Nigeria in the 80s. And, you know, and who is who is it by? Um, sorry, by Sefiata. Okay. Sefiata. And it's about Nigeria in the 1980s, and the country at that point is under military dictatorship. Amongst many other things, it's, I think it's just, it's one of those Nigerian novels that when I read it, I could recognize, you know, so many things and understand. I felt like it helped me to understand many things about the country and that it articulated some of the things that I had perceived. I read it maybe when I was 19 or 20 that I was perceiving and could not yet articulate. I think it gave me the language for those things. And it's it's a book very much about the country and very much about what it means to be a woman in Nigeria, you know. And there's a lot, there's quite a bit of gender politics and it's it's that intersection between the ordinary lives that people are living, you know, and it's pushing up against the state of the nation itself, you know. So it's a book that means a lot to me. I really like it. And I, even with the title of A Spell of Good Things, I wanted to pay homage to that book and hope that people could, that it was in conversation with this book. And then we go to On Black Sister Street by Chika Unigwe. Chika Unigwe. And this is uh, about... A group of a, a a group of women who living outside of Nigeria and working as sex workers, you know, and it's really, and I think part of what the section that it it sort of informs is a section that really looks at the transactional way that women go into some of the relationships, you know, that happen in this book, you know, and how at least for a particular character, marrying somebody was her way of surviving. You know, it wasn't really a love match as much as this was her way to survive, you know. And what does that mean, you know, for the marriage? What does that mean for the kind of mother that she becomes and the kind of values she's trying to pass to a daughter and what marriage means to her too? And then I think we go from that to Waiting for an Angel by Helena Bila, which is also another book about oppression and the oppression of the state in the con- in Nigeria. And then finally, Every Day is for the Thief by Teju Cole, which, you know, is really this immersion of in Lagos. You know, it's, it's a book about a city. And in that sense... I hope that it was in conversation with this book. A spell of good things was in conversation with that, in that it is also very much about a city. And there's also, I mean, what I'd always thought about in relation to the title of the that every day is for the thief, is you know it's a saying, and there's a second half of the saying, and it's every day is for the thief, one day is for the owner, and I find it very interesting that the title is every day for the thief, is for the thief, you know. Because, I mean, if every day is for the thief, does the owner really ever get a day, you know? And and I wanted 
to to think through it's one of the things that I think the novel tries to process you know if injustice is so rife you know is there ultimately that one day when there's there's some form of justice and the uh the title of your book is I think drawn from a line in the book world as mother uh yeah yeah she says quote life was war a series of battles with the occasional spell of good things and i think that hmm. speaks to what you're talking about you know like how i i feel this i think so many people around the world feel this with respect to the world which has got so many problems and they all seem to be reflections of one another you know maybe different variations on the same theme a lot of the time and it's just like are things going to get better are they getting better or is this just it it's just going to be a big mess with the occasional spell of good things <laughs> oh my goodness it all sounds so bleak <laughs> do you feel more optimistic than that or less optimistic than that I think I feel more optimistic than that. And I think the optimism is is probably is probably also a coping mechanism. Because otherwise, yeah, I, I do actually honestly feel more optimistic than that. But I mean with this book I didn't want to avoid what by the time I had finished it, felt like the reality of the world that I had created. You know, I wanted to go in there and face the things. You know, you know, I'd said earlier, for instance, you know, that in an initial draft, I had the younger sister be the Hancock character, and I think part of it was that I, I really just did not want to go through this harrowing thing. I wanted to see it refracted through, you know, the younger sister. I didn't want to be there with Varala but by the time I came back to it again I realized that that was was what I needed to do for this book that I needed to go there and um yeah I I hope it worked it did and you know it's a it's a really good thing to talk about and to point out is the way that we as writers so often avoid things and trick ourselves it's amazing to me sometimes when I catch myself avoiding something i've spent a year on something and it's like oh you know and you you eventually have to cop to it right and you have to go to the difficult place because that's exactly what the reader wants you to do the reader doesn't want world's experiences with domestic abuse to be refracted through the sister's lens you know they want to be right there where the drama is happening and you know i guess uh, theoretically there could be a compelling reason to have the story told from a distance, you know, but I think you made the, yes, I think yes. you made the right choice is, is what I'm getting at. And it's, it's just interesting how it takes us a while sometimes to make that choice. Was there something in particular that you learned in the earlier draft that wasn't work? Was it just not working or was there something you arrived at that made you pivot? I think it just was not working. And I think the, I think what happened was one half of the story was working and then the other half wasn't. And it was primarily, I think, because I'd gone with the wrong character as the uncle character. So that it was it was just a bit lopsided, you know, by the time I read it, that it was that thing where it felt like 
even when I was reading it, I was like, you know, I want to get back to the other people. These people, I don't know why I'm reading about these other people. I want to go back to that other family because their story is more compelling, you know, to me. Um, so that that was it. I think, yeah, I, I hope I hope it takes, I don't know, I, I hope the next one doesn't take as long to figure out. I, I feel you. I say the same thing about my book. My last book took me 10 years to write, so I'm just like, please, God, oh let me get this next one done in three years, like a normal yeah. human being. You know? <laughs> yes. <laughs> So I want to talk to you about drawing a little bit more about drawing Eniola's family. They have a very hard scrabble existence, just accessing their world. You know, I know you you came of age, the child of doctors or a mother who is a doctor, uh, well, well educated. I don't know if you came up, it doesn't seem like you came up against these kinds of issues as a child. I'm just wondering about writing that experience. Like Obviously, you bear witness to it, maybe from a distance, but how did you get inside the lives of those people with such uh, accuracy and feeling of verisimilitude and also mm. like that emotional reality? Like, mm. How did you get there? I mean, I think it was two things. I think the first thing was, and I think that with writing any character, it's to for me that sometimes there's something that I sometimes do that I did with this book was to pick a character and write about their day from like 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. You know, and just write. That's the first thing they do. And then after that, they do this. And then after that, they do this, you know, and just write my way through their day. And I feel like it helped me to get a sense of who they were and their core aspirations, their internal monologue, the metaphors of their lives. And so I think for me, it was that the first thing was to begin with these characters as, first of all, as human beings, not as, oh, this is a poor family. That wasn't what I began with. It was, this is a family. This is this person. This is this other person. And then start layering every other thing onto that. You know, the second thing was that I think I had a little, just a little, a little bit of access in that my mom's family, my my maternal grandparents, leave lived. You know, um, one of them is late now, lived in that part of town that I'm writing about. You know, that this family lives in. You know, in my mental landscape, they live a few houses away from my grandparents, and. It was a place that I visited quite a bit as a child. It wasn't where my family lived. And my grandparents had sort of had a leg up. And it, it's that thing with, that was possible, you know, for my mother's generation. That my mother's parents were not affluent, but the public school systems, the systems were still working in a way that my mother could have the kind of mobility that, when I went to visit my grandparents, whenever I would go to visit my grandparents and I would look around, was not available to the children who were living in that neighborhood now, you know. Yeah. And, and for me, it was one of the reasons, one of the things that I sort of wanted to tease out, that people were also seeing their access points sort of fizzle out, you know, and disappear in a very tangible way. So that was some of what I remembered and I 
built with. You know, my grandmother still lives there and I visit and I, and I mean, sometimes I spend a week with her. So that, that was the other access that I had. But I think that the most important thing is really to come to a character, you know, as a human being, you know, and try to get to understand what their internal life is like and try to then think about what else is happening in the environment that feeds into that. That's a really good point because I think it can sometimes, especially if you're writing outside of the scope of your own lived experience, it can be intimidating mm -hmm. to try to do that imaginative work. And it sounds like what you're saying is like, well, what does this person have for breakfast? <laughs> what do they do yeah. right when they wake up? Do they pray? Do they go outside and like feed the livestock or whatever it is, you know, like if you start to get into those everyday details, that alone can mm. maybe kickstart the, the process of creation and you can start to really see them as people rather than, you know, bear the weight of this creative burden as you're thinking of it, you know, like, oh my God, I have this responsibility to get it right. It's easy to kind of psych yourself out, you know? Yeah, it's so easy. So I want to talk to you about politics and the knowingness about that part of Nigerian life that this book conveys. You grew up in a household where politics was talked about and this had to, I think, be a good education for the writing of this book. But I'm also curious to know, like, was there a, a unified like political viewpoint in your household or were there, were, was it ever contentious? You know what I'm saying? Was it the kind of household where everybody was kind of discussing politics, but everybody was sort of on one side or was it the kind of thing where there was a fluid discussion happening and people were kind of batting ideas around and disagreement was permitted? I think disagreement was encouraged. <laughs> um, yeah, and I think there was always that thing where the discussion would be going in this direction and somebody would just be like, no, but what about this? You know, And I sometimes I would wonder, and this was often my sister, I'd wonder, do you really mean this or are you just saying this to get a rise out uh, of the rest of us? Right. <laughs> you know, so it was... Um, it was it, it was a disagreement happened and a lot of arguments. You know, um, in the last elections, the last two elections, you know, my mother and I were on opposite sides. Of the, you know, she was convinced. I was convinced about who I wanted to vote for. She was convinced that it was the worst decision. Ever and I think she has been proven right, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> should have listened to your mom. <laughs> yeah, right until that morning, I was still making a case to her, and she was just like, "No." But I think that's great. I think that's great to. I think that's the way. I mean, I hope to be as a parent is to, and I, that's the way I was raised, where you can have dialogue, even and especially when you disagree. That's so healthy. And that's something that I think in American culture anyway has gotten lost. It's like, if you don't agree with me, then we're just not speaking. There's a lot of that. You know, there's people just talking past one another. Uh, but I don't think you could write probably a good novel that deals in politics and political realities without maybe having 
some foundation for that in your youth or some place where you got to sort of experiment and dialogue about this stuff. Or, or maybe it's like you didn't have it at all and maybe you turned to writing as the place to find it. But it makes more sense to me that you were raised this way and that you had these concerns front of mind even as a child. Yes, absolutely. And it's something else you mentioned earlier, which speaks to me in my experience, because I have two kids and trying to get them educated. And one of the concerns that, you know, the central concerns, the like practical central concerns of your book is mm-hmm. this family, Eniola's family, trying to get their children educated. And you mentioned mm-hmm. that previous generations in Nigeria had a functioning public school system that allowed for mobility. And we live in Los Angeles, where the public school system is, let's just say, inconsistent at best. You know, there are some good public schools, but it depends where you live. You got to be in the right district. And a lot of them are substandard. And as a parent, you're left with these choices where it's like, well, you either go to a private school and pay all this money to educate your kids, or you send your, you send your kid to school every day knowing that you're giving them a substandard education. That's a terrible choice for a parent to have to make. And what I will always argue, like not always to great effect at cocktail parties, and I don't even go to cocktail parties, so I don't know what I'm talking about, but I don't believe, I don't believe that private school should be legal. Like maybe if there is like a religion thing, you really want your, you know, I know there's going to be loopholes people find. And a lot of times they'll say it's a religious thing, but really what it is, at least in the States, and maybe it's, it seems like it's the same in Nigeria is it is a way of securing privilege and advantage, educational advantage, but also I think social advantage is a huge part of it by sending your kids to these private schools where they will be associating with other kids from wealthy families. And, you know, those kinds of relationships carry through and they confer a real advantage. And so it drives me crazy to hear people talk in the United States of America about equality of opportunity and all this bullshit, because it's really not the case. If we really believed in equality Mm -hmm. of opportunity, then the children of millionaires and billionaires would be going to public school with the kids of working class families and people who don't have nearly the advantage. And if that were the case, then the public schools would be great. If rich people had to send their kids to public schools, like the politics around it would change like that. So Forgive me for getting on a soapbox, but this really bothers me. <laughs> I'm on the soapbox yeah. too. Um, <laughs> we're together yeah. on this. And I mean, and I speak as a kid that went to a private school, you know, and I, I, I started in a public school, you know, because, you know, my mom thought that was the right thing. And after the first term, I didn't know anything, you know, and I think she just said, you know, okay, you've got to go to, I mean, we, by the time it got to my sister, she didn't even go to any public school. And I think it's, I think it's really fractured society, you know, to, because, you know, I then got into the university and in the university, before, I mean, or even up till now, the public university systems were much better, you know, at that point I was getting to university. And I was in class with people who were very bright, you know, but I could tell that they didn't have a good secondary school education and therefore they were struggling. And it, it just even then seemed 
unfair, you know, to be evaluated alongside with people who did not have the same opportunities that I had, you know, in terms of education. And it's, it's unfortunately only gotten worse. And what I believe, where I think we should start in Nigeria, is that everyone who holds public office must sign a contract that their children are going to go to public schools. Every right. single person. You can't send your child to a exactly. private school if you want to hold public office. So I'm right there with you on that. Yes, yeah, I think it would change things dramatically. And I should also add, if I have this correct, I believe that in Finland, which is consistently rated as having the best schools in the world, private school is illegal. And I think we're so far from that politically in the United States. It's not even part of a conversation people are having, you know, in a, in a common way. But it's like, wow, this is just really a, an entrenched caste system, essentially. And mm-hmm. it, it, is, uh, it is so cruel to children. It's cruel to children who don't yes. have uh, privilege. And mm-hmm. I, there, no decent society would do that to kids. So we're an indecent society until we fix it, is my view. <laughs> yeah. Um, so anyway, your book spoke to me on that level. And I was really rooting for Eniola. He's a very sympathetic character and a tragic character. And, you know, it, 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 it's really an achievement to, I think, write the life of a, a guy like him and to get in, like kind of get inside his existence and to really make the reader understand how a bright child with so much promise like him can wind up, you know, as a, a, what do you call him even? Not a hitman necessarily, but a heavy for like mm. a political, for a political player who's kind of dictatorial and authoritarian in his bearing. And suddenly, Eniola, just because he needs, he's he's lost and he's searching for resources and a, an identity, winds up working for this guy and winds up doing things that he has absolutely no interest in doing. Hmm. You know, compromises himself morally, and it's a, uh, that's a great tragedy. And I think oftentimes the way that we perceive these tragedies is just at the back end of it. All we hear is the new, the news story about, you know, so-and-so was beaten or killed or kidnapped and so-and-so, so-and-so was arrested and he's 17 years old or whatever it is. But yeah. we never really get the story of how that 17-year-old got to that point. And you humanize, you humanize yeah. that so well in this novel. Yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah, it's heartbreaking. I'm glad. I'm glad it comes across that way because it, it's one of the things I really wanted to do with this character. Must have been hard to write. It was. You know. <laughs> it was. How do you? Yeah, and I think too, like you write about something like this. I can imagine the writing getting too emotional, like to yeah. write it well. I mean, obviously, you want to create an emotional effect. But if your viewpoints mm-hmm. as a writer, I think, become too intrusive or explicit on the page, it can actually ruin the fiction. Did you did you struggle did you struggle yeah. with that in earlier drafts at all? Uh, yes, absolutely. I, I I think I struggle with that <laughs> with my fiction actually because <laughs> I mean with with my first novel, for instance, in one of the earlier drafts, which is probably why. It kept getting rejected. One of the earlier drafts had, you know, the husband character joins a political party. Just and this is st- this I is, had things. Just to so do. wait, just so this is stay. This with is me. stay with me. Okay, yeah. This is not your new book. It's the it's yes. the debut. 
Yes, this is Stay With Me. And, you know, the character just joins this political party and then there's just this section where it's going on campaign. And I'm just, you know, and it's really just because I had something I wanted to say about, you know, the 1993 elections in Nigeria. But that was in the novel to do that, you know, and until I came to accept that, I don't think it was going anywhere. And the same with this book that I... I think I always have to peer back, you know, on certain things and remove some of my soapboxing and really just stay with the character and what they care about right now and what is impacting their life right now, you know. And I think that that can be more compelling, you know, than my 10-point agenda <laughs> that... Four, four. We should add your your eventual campaign for governor of Osun State. <laughs> I look forward to this when you oh you make the big career you make the big career shift into politics. <laughs> that's that's not not the way Nigerian politics is right oh. now. Um, no. um, but yeah, that's hilarious. But but it's something that I definitely struggle with, you know. Because it's, and I think part of it is trust in the story, you know, and trust in the reader also. And trusting that you're giving the reader enough for them to have their own response to what is happening, you know. Not thinking that I have to come and lecture them and say, you know, this happened in chapter five, but it is wrong. Just in case you think it is right. right. You know, um, yeah, it, it's 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 something that I'm constantly having to check myself on. I well, think. I think what it's like this struggle between like fiction and nonfiction, almost. I don't think it's the responsibility of fiction to do polemic, you know, to to hmm. to make those kinds of like explicit arguments. I think what it comes down to for me as a writer and as a reader is that when a political novel is done well as yours is, it's, it humanizes the political because ultimately that's what it's about, right? These political machinations can seem really abstract to us or just like annoying or what's even going on. These people are awful. What are they doing? But the truth is that, and this is what I will often argue when people become really cynical about politics and kind of nihilistic and disaffected about it, and they disavow participation. They say, I'm not going to participate in that. I'm not paying attention to that. It's not affect, you know, I always say, listen, you know, politics determines how fast you can drive. You know, it determines, um, you know, what gets taught in schools oftentimes. And we were dealing with this right now, whether or not books are banned. I mean, there's all sorts of decisions Mm -hmm. that affect the everyday lives of people. So you can say it's corrupt. You can say it's, insane but you can't say that it doesn't hmm. matter <laughs> uh oh it does yeah so i think it's important to show the ways that it matters that's what hmm. i think a good political novel usually does right yeah absolutely and and i and that's what i that's what i one of the things that i hoped this book will do you know show the 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 impact of many of this decisions that come down on the radio you know like oh yeah this is going to happen and those people have decided that you know the governor has decided that you know we don't need history teachers anymore we don't need 
people who are teaching the humanities that I wanted to think about five years later from this, how is this affecting ordinary everybody's life? You know, like I'm really interested in that and finding a way to show that in fiction because I do think they matter. And I think that, you know, I, I sometimes think that they even tend to matter more in places where there are no safety nets, you know, that the impact of politics is even more intense, you know, in that sense, because there's nothing for people to fall onto. Um, yeah. Well, this is a beautiful book. It's totally, it's another one of these books. It's totally engrossing. I said this about a novel by a guest of mine just last week. I love books like that. They just take you away and, you know, really bring, uh, I guess, contemporary, recent, con recently contemporary life in Nigeria mm. into focus for me. And, you know, sp and it, it's a book that really speaks to human experience that mm. translates, uh, you know, across cultures, across borders. You know, this is a very human mm. story and just beautifully told. And I hope that the next book you write doesn't take six years, but I mean, if it does, I'll wait, you know, but I'm, so do do I. You, <laughs> let me ask you, I always ask, do you have anything mm. that you're working on? Is there another book that you're working on to kind of keep things rolling? Or are you just taking a, a break after this one to kind of enjoy motherhood or? I sort of have something I'm working on, but I feel like, I'm I'm going at a, 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 probably an even slower pace just because, you know, I used to be that person who, I was very nocturnal before I had a baby. You know, I would just stay up all night and go to bed like 5 a.m. And now it's not something that I've done in a very long time. So I really loved working in the quiet of the night. Mm -hmm. So my pacing is very different now. You know, it's interesting. People who are night owls, like real, real night owls. That is a biological thing. Like I have a, my brother-in-law is that way. He can stay up all night, loves it, loves to go to bed at like six in the morning, sleep half the, yeah. sleep half the day, get up and just like live on that clock. That is a specific biology. Like that's a thing that people are wired for. And what I wonder is yeah. that if this is the case for you, then you become a parent or you get a job, say that, you know, your hours are nine to five. You have to work during the day and go to sleep at night. It's got to be tough for people who are wired to be night owls to have to invert their, their biology, right? <laughs> I mean, the first thing is the sleep. When the baby sleeps, it does not work for me. Like the baby goes to bed maybe 7.30 and 1 a.m. I'm still sort of trying to get myself to sleep. So, I mean, I, I've, I haven't figured it out yet. So it's this thing where I'm like, I have to sleep. I have to sleep. I have to sleep. <laughs> I still haven't slept. I know. That's the worst, right? Where you're like pressuring yourself. <laughs> you feel like you're failing. <laughs> yeah. You know, maybe the answer though, I think like, because I struggle sometimes with sleep. I'll wake up in the night. I can go to sleep, but then I wake up in the night. Mm -hmm. And I'm just like, you know what? Sometimes it maybe just get up. Like, don't force yourself. If you're up, you're up. Get up and start mm. doing stuff. And just, if you get tired enough, you'll sleep. Mm -hmm. Maybe the key is to just exhaust yourself. 
Yeah. You know. But <laughs> as a new parent, that should not be too difficult. You know, it seems. No, it's not. <laughs> I feel like I'm always exhausted. But somehow, I think just because. I'm so used to being up all night. I mean, it's it's so wired into me that I remember one of my one of the things that I remember my mom saying to me. I was about fourteen, and she came to my room at two a.m. and I was reading a newspaper, and she was like, "What are you doing?" <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> yeah, and I, I think it's just so hardwired into me that even when I'm exhausted, it's like. I'm just still, I, I seldom fall asleep before midnight. Just, yeah. So can you give me any hints about what this next project is? Just in a broad sense? Like, is it a novel? Is it? <sighs> yeah, it's a novel. What's it about? <laughs> what's um, it concerned with? Yeah, what's it concerned with? I think it's concerned with heart in a particular kind of way. It's it's about a piece of heart. It's it's about a, it's it's a wood carving, really. You know, that's sort of like a family heirloom, and I think it's multi generational. I don't know. I mean, <laughs> that's what I have right I now. I understand. I understand. Um, but that gives us it gives yeah. us an idea. It gives us an idea. I always like to mm-hmm. ask, and I understand too that like things yeah. can change. So. If if yeah. your next book comes out and my listeners pick it up and there's not a, a, a wooden heart in the book, they shouldn't hold you to it, right? Uh, yes, please don't. <laughs> well, listen, uh, always fun to talk with you. I'm so glad to get a chance to catch up and to uh, help you celebrate the publication of A Spell of Good Things. It's a great book. Thank you so much. And I will let you now get back to what it's evening in Nigeria. So you're going to be up for a few hours. Go read the newspaper, do whatever you do at, you know, this time of night. And I hope that you find time to enjoy this moment because for writers who write books and publish books, Usually these kinds of moments don't happen all that often. It's every few years at at the most, right? So enjoy it. And congratulations again on, uh, you know, the new baby, the marriage, the book, all of it. Thank you. Thank you so much. Okay, everyone. There we have it. That was my conversation with Ayobami Adebayo. Her new novel, A Spell of Good Things, is available now in hardcover in North America from Kanapf. If you would like to find Ayobami on the internet, her website is ayobamiadabayo.com. She is also on social media. Track her down on Facebook, Instagram. Her handle on Twitter is at ayobamiadabayo. One more time, the novel is called A Spell of Good Things. Go get your copy right away. It's a great book. If you would like to support this show, I would greatly appreciate that. You can do so at Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash other P-P-L pod. Support the show for as little as $1 a month and help keep it going. Patreon dot com slash other P-P-L pod. If you would like to get yourself some merchandise, an other people t-shirt, for example, you could do that. Just go to other dot com. Look for the t-shirt. You'll find it. It's easy. Get a t-shirt. If you would like to receive my once-a-week email newsletter, you can sign up for that. It's free. Just go to otherppl.com or bradlisty.com. It's pretty easy. You'll see the little envelope, I think. There's a little icon. You click on it. You sign up. You know how to do this. If you would be so kind, I would appreciate it if you would rate and review this podcast 
wherever you listen to this podcast. So take two minutes. It helps. It really does help as the uh, show gets more ratings and more reviews. The Other People Podcast is on YouTube. Go to YouTube, search for the show by name, Other PPL, if you would like to watch this show. And when you get to the Other People channel, hit the subscribe button. It's free. You can also watch clips or highlights on TikTok, on Instagram, and on Twitter. The Other People Podcast handle on Twitter is at Other PPL. If you would like to email me, if you have feedback, if you have thoughts, if you have something you just need to get off your chest, the email address for the show is letters at otherppl.com. If you would like to read my novel, my latest novel, it is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. It is available now in trade paperback, ebook, and audiobook editions. I narrate the audiobook. It is out there and it is waiting for you. So if you're interested in that, go get it. It's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. So up next on the Other People Podcast, I believe it will be a new Craftwork episode, a conversation with author and teacher Courtney Maum. I'm very excited about it. We're going to be talking about book proposals. So stay tuned. Stay tuned.